welcome to the Love Well podcast for another episode of uh, the Real Talk. Uh, real people, real talk. The Real Talk, Real People series, or whatever that might be. Um, all of a sudden, I can't remember the name of my own podcast series. So, Real Talk, Real People. That's it. And my guest this week is Jay Rose. Uh, he is, uh, among other things, my brother. And uh, so I've known him his whole life. Uh, he has not known me my whole life. And, uh, you know, that's... Goodness. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So uh, we are doing this little... Uh, doing, a, doing a series right now on, um, you know, just trying to share stories uh, as we are kind of walking through these times. And um, the last number of weeks, uh, we've, we've just kind of, kind of looked at stories of, from friends of mine uh, who, are, who are Black and what it's been like for them growing up uh, in this world. And so I thought it might also be uh, helpful to spend some time talking about what it's like to be a police officer. Uh, because I think, I think being a police officer is one of those jobs that everybody thinks they know what it's like to be because of TV and movies, uh, because we know that TV and movies are exact representations of real life. And <laughs> so, um, so I thought it might be, might be good just to, to catch a bit of, of reality. Um, as we are all trying to understand uh, this, this world a little bit better. So uh, if you want to uh, continue the conversation uh, with me uh, at the end of this, feel free, hit me up on Twitter at Daniel M. Rose. Uh, you can also subscribe to love well uh, at danielmrose.com. And then everything I write and record will drop right into your inbox. Um, and uh, let's see. Yeah, I guess those are the big things. Oh, the archive of this will be available at youtube.com slash Daniel Rose. And uh, so, so yeah. So, Jay, you're, okay, first, you're going to be in town here uh, soon. And yeah. so I have an important question to ask uh, from my son, which is when are you coming in and how long are you staying? Um, when Jen tells me to. Both. <laughs> he's trying to figure out if he's coming home. So, um, um, well, I, <clears throat> um, I think Saturday morning I'm leaving here. So Saturday. Okay. All right. And you guys leaving Sunday or you leaving Monday? Monday. Gotcha. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I will, I'll give him that information so he can try to make his best judgment um all right so jay just to kind of you know give people a little bit of background uh why don't you let me just share a little bit about uh where you grew up um and how you how you found yourself to be a, a police officer like how did you how did you get involved how did you how did you become a how did you get to become a police officer so you know maybe start with a little bit of background and and just kind of your, your career path. Okay. I, um, grew up in Waterford, Michigan, which is a Sorry. suburb of Detroit, Metro Detroit. 
we are, I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth, much like you did. You know, we didn't want for anything, didn't need for anything. Um, we did grow up in a single mother's household, but our dad was very involved, whether it be physically or monetarily, he was involved, which not a whole lot of people get. Um, I, <clears throat> when I graduated high school, I went into the Navy opposed to going to college and uh, did four years there, which kind of turned my uh, life's path, I guess. Because I, I think if I would have gone straight into college, I probably would have been a teacher. Um, and I think that was... I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine that. I'm trying to imagine Mr. Rose teaching. <laughs> you, would have had, you would have had to be a gym teacher. Uh, no, I'm not athletic enough to be a gym teacher. <laughs> well, but reading and writing aren't your strong suits either. Well, I can write, man. I had Mrs. Feldman. <laughs> That's true. Greatest That's English true. teacher of all time. She really is. She, you know, she's the only person to ever give me like any te- the only teacher I've ever had that gave me less than a, less than an A. No, <laughs> I didn't have that issue. <laughs> That's because you're such. My a teachers were ready and willing to give me bad grades. <laughs> Probably why I'm a cop too. <laughs> um, so where so, did you serve? Where did you serve in the Navy? So I was a ship's company on the USS Constellation, which is a aircraft carrier. Um. And then, so that was my first year and a half. I did a deployment to the Persian Gulf with that ship. And then um, it decommissioned, which means it went out of service. And I got transferred to a F-18 squadron, VFA-37, um, where we went out on the USS Truman aircraft carrier. Um, I loaded F-18s with um munitions ordinance and uh i spent the rest of my four years there okay and then while i was there and so while i was in vfa 37 which is out of virginia beach i met my lovely wife jennifer and uh at the corner of 18th and atlantic and uh <laughs> um and then and then jay's life changed for the better yes it did and um at that point um so i knew her and we were very serious when i went on my last appointment and i decided i had to decide during that deployment if i was going to re-enlist or not mm. um and at that point one minute. Sarge is, Sarge is excited. Not a happy person right now. <laughs> I love the fact that, you know, Jay now knows how to mute the Zoom um, because his kids had to do online school during the COVID. <laughs> and, and we get to do it again for January. <laughs> Woo! Woo! <laughs> um, so I do get a taste of being a teacher still. That's right. That's right. You're your um, true calling. So anyways, back to 
my story. I was back. So we were out to sea. I was in the Persian Gulf and I had to decide if I wanted to re-enlist or not, um, which came with turning down $75,000 re-enlistment bonus. And uh, that was mostly tax-free because we were in the Persian Gulf. Um, so I called Jen and I'm sure it was like, oh, dark 30 in the morning for her. And, um, she told me to do whatever I wanted. I said, okay. So I decided that I didn't want, um, to have a family in the Navy. I had watched a lot of a lot of people have a hard time with it, you know, and I didn't want my family to grow up that way, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I decided to get out and uh, I moved to Pittsburgh with Jen. And a year later, we were married by you. And uh, then <clears throat> you still have you still have one of the most romantic answers ever to, uh, to the premarital question of why, why do you want to get married? <laughs> and I use it in every single one of my premarital counseling appointments as an example of what not to say. <laughs> yeah. Chase. Uh, that's another story for another time. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, that 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 would probably be another story for like divorce counseling. <laughs> well, your cousin Justin used the same one when he uh, when he married Ashley, so um, or almost exactly the same one. So, well, we're two peas in a pod. You you are you are, but he's he's less good looking than you, <laughs> right? <laughs> um. So anyway, I uh, moved to Pittsburgh. And, uh, while we were in Pittsburgh, we started going to a church, uh, United Methodist church there, um, where I met a guy named Mike Sarsfield, who was very involved in the community. And, um, he kind of, well, he introduced me to law enforcement, um, where I, he took me on as a deputy constable, okay. um, which sort of like a sheriff um but we we worked out of the district court serving minor warrants um doing evictions and stuff like that and i really started to i i met one of my best friends um bill ostrider at that point and he was a police officer also he was and he was a constable um but he worked for, he was a police officer for Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. Um, but so I, I started falling in love with um, law enforcement at that point. Um, just there's a, I don't know, there's a, I wouldn't say a high, but there's a, for adrenaline junkies and, you know, it, there's a certain adrenaline an adrenaline dump that you get um, when you are doing that kind of work um, that I got addicted to. Mm. And 
at that point I started going to college and I, so I worked as a constable while I was going to college and uh, I was going to college for special ed and elementary education. Um, and I started seeing that <laughs> road um, really get very political. And I didn't realize how political teaching that school systems were. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm glad that I had mom and Dave, um, our brother Dave, um, going through some real not pretty times in the education field. And I was like, man, I, I just don't think that's going to be for me. Um, and I had, at the time I was also working um, in the mental health field with kids. And that kind of drove me. I was like, well, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this for a career. Right. Um, so, and I knew I was really in love with, you know, that aspect of law enforcement where you had that adrenaline, you know, you could help people. And uh, so I switched my major to criminal justice like an idiot. <laughs> and uh, it's like business. You don't need a business degree to be a businessman. Yeah, you don't yeah, need yeah. Criminolo criminology degree to be a cop. <laughs> yep. So, um, but I, you know, I, in that department, um, met a lot of really good people. Um, a lot of cool, you know, small world type things. Like, mm -hmm. you know, one of my professors um, at Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, um, he had been married to my, the varsity football coach's sister, um, Mike Berry's sister. No way. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> that is small world, small world. Right. And then I ended up working with his cousin in Baltimore. Okay. So a very small world. Um, and, uh, but you know, at that point I, I was like, you know, when I graduated college with my crim degree, I was like, and the day I graduated was the day Jenny told me she was knocked up with McKenna. Um, I was like, well, shit, I better get a, uh, get a real job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you disclaimer everybody that I have a terrible mouth? <laughs> well, now they just found out though. So it's all right. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. If we, <laughs> try it. We'll try We'll try to avoid, let's try to avoid the one that rhymes with truck. <laughs> that's my favorite i know i know you and bobby knight so <laughs> it's the most versatile word in the english language it goes um, with everything <laughs> but the one you just used you know mimi used it so yeah, right it so it's bad. okay it fixed right. everything exactly um so i decided i needed to get a real job when you know i found out i was gonna be a dad mm -hmm. and uh so, you know, talking to Jen, I needed a police academy. Nowhere in Pennsylvania, except for the state police, um, offered um, police academies for free um, or as part of being hired, I guess. Right. Most places you had to um, 
have your police academy prior to applying. It was more like a college type police academy in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and then you also had to work like for five different departments part time before you got hired onto a you know a full time department. What? Why do you think? What's your gut? Like, why do you think they do things that way? Just because it's it's cheaper. Cheaper. Mm-hmm. So they, they're not they're not on the hook to it. it you know, like <clears throat> places that have a actual um, police academy, state you know, PA state police, Baltimore, they have to staff those academies, and you know. Down here, pretty much everyone has their own academy. Um, if not, they send them to someone else's academy, and they have to pay those academies to teach their person. Gotcha. Um, but you know, staffing an academy—that's a lot of people that police departments take off the street right. um, to put into classroom settings, put into you know, at least when I went through, you know, PT settings, defensive tactics, you know all that stuff and have those people trained in, to teach um, and be um, qualified through the state to be able to teach that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of money just to have a, a full-fledged running police academy. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it is just, you know, it's the money just thing. Comes down to, just comes down to bucks. Dollars and cents. Yep mostly dollars because there ain't much sense (laughs) true that true that so you so you are looking you're looking for this opportunity in baltimore Baltimore city City called me first i (laughs) um i was on the waiting list for um border patrol um and i would if i got that job i would have been in southeast or southwest uh united states so around that you know arizona texas yeah. border where it really is dangerous right um i remember mom being very worried about this yeah <laughs> <laughs> um i was like well i sound like a canadian can we uh <laughs> i play hockey <laughs> they're really nice up there <laughs> you should reason number one to, to learn french right. <laughs> <laughs> um so i baltimore called me first and okay. uh, and uh 10 years ago almost to the day so as of july 2nd i completed my 10th year with this mm. department um, and you know, in that time we've, um, well, McKenna was about six months when she came down here and then we've had Keegan, mm-hmm. our son, and, uh, we're building a, building a happy home down here. Cool. And you, for a time you, you lived in the, uh, the hometown of arguably one of the greatest Lions coaches in the history of Lions football, one hundred percent. Jim Schwartz, J- old Jim Schwartz. May the Schwartz be with hailed, you. Hailed out of Arbutus, Maryland. <laughs> so, uh, in your ten years now um, that you've been uh, with Baltimore City Police, 
Uh, well, hold on. Before we get there, um, Baltimore City uh, is uh, totally a safe city. Uh, nothing happens there, right? It's just a quiet, just a quiet uh, metropolitan area. Um, Baltimore is arguably one of the most dangerous cities in a, in a well, it is the most dangerous city in America, um, I would say. And, and so it's per, probably per, on the list for proper, you know, per crime. Yeah. Um, we have 300 plus murders a year. Um, seven, probably including, including non-fatal victims, um, from homicides. We have 700, um, non-fatal shooting incidents a year. That's incidents. That's not victims. Right. Um, and that's 300 murder. Well, 300 plus murders is victims. Yeah. Um, robberies and, you know, every part one crime you can think of, we, we are right there at the top. Um, and then, so it's, it's not a, it's not a great city. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Um, and nothing I say is, you know, representative of the Baltimore city police department. Department. (laughs) All all views expressed here are Jay's own. Um, Well, and you know, and you you say not a great city, but I mean, we've, we've been to visit. It's, there are beautiful parts of the city. There is, Um, there is. And and we've, we've also gotten a little bit of the, uh, the wire tour from you. Um, Little snapshots here and there of the parts of the city that, um, you know, my kids still talk about. <laughs> so, um, all right. So since, since you've been with Baltimore city police, um, what, uh, what are some of the different, some of the different roles you've had? Um, so I did a year and a half in patrol, um, as a patrol officer, um, right out of the Academy. And then I went to and a patrol a, officer is someone answers calls. Okay. Um, the beat cop, so yeah, to speak, pushes a car and, uh, you know, goes to all the 911 calls. Okay. And you've got a, a partner in the car with you because on nope, TV, we see are, that there's always two police in a car. Not in Baltimore. Uh, we don't have enough police to do that. So um, you're on your, on your own in one of the most dangerous cities yep. uh, in the world. Yes. Um, right out of the police. Now on your own, that's, that's, you're in your car by yourself. Okay. Um, and you might go and handle, you know, kind of, you know, noise complaints or whatever by yourself. But I always worked on midnight shift. Um, and midnight, midnight officers were a different breed. Um, you know, there's a, it's a different element of crime that you deal with and people that you do, deal with on mm-hmm. a midnight shift. So, you know, a lot of what I'm, of my experience is midnight shift related. Sure. Where, you know, we, we dealt with more of a, um, of a, I, I, you know, part one crime. So felon, you know, felony type crimes. That's more of what we dealt with. Um, 
along with like domestic violence. Okay. So, you know, not a whole lot of like the um, just silly disputes or what yeah. have you. Like so the, the, so the, the part one stuff is, is more of the bad stuff. Yes. Yes. 100%. Uh, Violent. Like murders, murders, robberies, aggravated assaults. Okay. Um, common assaults. So, so, so when you say you're not, you're alone in your car, but not necessarily alone, you right, might have another not, car that's like what, four or five blocks away or. Yeah. I, I, especially on midnights, your, your closest backup is like, at least in Baltimore. And um, as long as I've been here, everyone's been pretty, pretty good about um, your backup and response time. Um, but, you know, the way that we're broken down in our city, um, your closest backup is typically about 25 seconds away. Okay. And I don't think I had ever in 10 years, I don't think I ever really went on a call by myself. Okay. Um, but you know, besides like silly stuff. Right, right, right. Um, but anything where there was any, even an iota, of a chance that there could be a, something dangerous, you didn't you didn't go by yourself, right? And if you had a good dispatcher, you wouldn't be going there by yourself anyway. Gotcha. They would dispatch more than one person anyway. Okay. Which, in my experience, never really needed to happen because somebody was already going. Right. Um. So, anyways, so I did patrol for a year and a half, and then I went to a flex unit, which is like a drug unit. Um where I worked in, um, we were the, the housing flex unit in the um, Southeast district, which um, we handled um, three uh, public housing areas. And that was our, so um, that was our area of responsibility. Um, and we did drug work, um, mainly, and we kind of, as a flex unit, opposed to just a straight drug unit, we, we worked, um, to kind of at the beck and call of the detectives that were in the district, um, whatever they really needed, if they needed to talk to somebody, um, if there was somebody who, um, wasn't, who they needed to talk to, but wasn't cooperative, we would see if we could figure out a way to get them into the district um, one way or another. Because um, typically, like the areas that we worked in and the people who we needed to talk to were somehow um, involved in the criminal element. So there, you know, there's, there's ways of getting people in to talk. Okay. Um, anyway, so then I did that for a year, absolutely hated it. Um, and I wanted to be more of a, go more of the investigative route. Okay. Uh, and I kind of fell into a detective unit. Um, so to speak, there was a sergeant who got into a wreck 
and I backed him up and um, I had talked to him. I was like, you know, I was looking at going to a detective unit. So then yeah. I put in, you know, my transfer paperwork and um, kind of balloon from there. I've been in a detective unit for six years now. Um, so, I, you know, I did four years of not investigating, you know, well, seven years really of investigating. Okay. Flex unit, you're developing cases sure. uh, as far as drugs is concerned. Um, so, so I know, I know for a time, and this might've been that this, this unit that you were talking about, um, you were, you're a detective, uh, investigating non-fatal shootings. That's what I'm, that's what I do now. That's what you do now. Okay. Yep. Um, so when I left the drug unit, well, the flex unit, um, I went to Southwest district where I'm at now, um, and started investigating robberies. I did that for a year. Um, and then I got moved over into non-fatal shootings. And then over the, over the years, we, um, they centralized everybody where we got centralized downtown. So all the shooting detectives in the city, um, non-fatal shooting detectives in the city, um, got moved downtown to a centralized location. Um, and we did that for a few years and then a new regime came in um and they decentralized us and so now we're back in the districts um so they spread us all out again over the nine districts okay um and you know there's there's goods and bads to to all of that sure whether it you know we were when we were centralized we fell under the homicide umbrella yeah um and a lot you know as far as non-fail as far as like shootings are concerned you know a millimeter either way and it could be a fatal shooting right you know um whether it's in a limb or the body right because there's lots of arteries yeah um and being under that umbrella there was a lot more um information passing i guess just because you got we were so close to each other um as far as geographically yeah so um, and then now we're back in the districts where, you know, we have Intel right at our fingertips because, you know, the guys who are out in the street every day is right there. Yeah. So when, when there's a non-fatal shooting, I've got a bunch of other questions I want to come back to, but just while we're on the non-fatal shooting thing, um, since the since the victim isn't dead, a lot of folks will think that they're going to, they're going to be helpful to you as a police officer to, um, to find the person who, who shot them. How, how has that, has that been your experience that, um, that the victims in, in these, in these shootings are just like, yeah, I know who it was. I saw him. It was so-and-so. Um, or is it not exactly that way? Um, it is not that way. Um, I might have 
So I, I investigate probably about 25 non-fatal shootings a year personally. Okay. Um, and that's like, one, that's like one every other week. Yeah. And that's like, a lot. This, like this week, you know, two so far. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, and mind you, I, I only have worked yesterday, last night. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> this week. Um, so I might get maybe one or two people a year who are willing to help me um, find out who shot them. Um, other than that, it is a, the, in this city, they do not talk to the police as far as shootings are concerned. Now robberies, nobody likes a thief. Okay. Um, and like, I was closing like 60% of my cases when I was investigating robberies, which is a very high number of, you know? Yeah. Um, and as far as shootings, you know, you're, if you're closing 25 or 30%, you're a rock star. Wow. And, but you know, and what's amazing is, is if you, if you look at my caseload, you can see who helped and who didn't. Hmm. Um, and, you know, typically most of, most of the shootings that we're dealing with are not, you know, a surprise to the person who's being shot. Interesting. You know, it's part of the game. Yeah. Which is a very sad life. If you ask me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, and don't get me wrong, you know, there is a there is a very high fear factor that goes along with, you know, talking to the police. Why? Because of retaliation. Okay. Because you know, this isn't these aren't these aren't shootings that are done, you know, just to shoot people. There's always there, I would probably say 90% of them are targeted shootings. Hmm. You know, you might get a, a stray bullet here and there that hits someone that it shouldn't, but the, you know, they're, they're all going, there's a reason for, uh, you know, there's typically a reason why people are being shot. Interesting. You know, yeah. when you get that eight year old kid that's shot, obviously that's not right on purpose right do something to get that yeah but you know typically if you know if your victim is 16 years old or above there's probably a good reason why they were shot interesting that's really sad um so as so i know on the one hand you said earlier you know there's kind of a you know, a little bit of an adrenaline rush about being a police officer and, and, and you're entering into some of these different kind of environments. And, and, and I think, and I think with anything that, that people do that they love, there's that adrenaline rush. Right. So um, like me getting the chance to, 
to preach, you know, on a Sunday morning or whatever. Like there's, if I'm honest, there's, there's a little bit of an adrenaline rush. There's just something about having people kind of listening to you. And that's, that's pretty cool. I think about our dad and um, the adrenaline rush of selling a car to that, to that person that nobody, nobody else could sell it to, or to sell that car that nobody else could sell. Um, so, uh, but, but with that, when you, when you go out on patrol, I mean, what kind of what's, what's going through your head as you, as you're going out there, because you're, you're not walking into, you know, Troy, Michigan or Royal Oak, where it's just a bunch of goofy, you know, college kids. I mean, you're, you're walking into, you know, on a, on a nightly basis, you, you're out in the midst of one of the most dangerous cities in the world. So, you know, what, what's kind of, what would you say is like, is your, is your mindset, your state of mind, kind of your emotional, like what's, what's going through your head as you're, as you go to work every night? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so my biggest thing that I always had to do was when, when I was getting dressed for roll call. So getting dressed prior to my, my day starting, you know, you have to get, you have to send, you have to center yourself. Um, you know, I had, a I had a, um, instructor in the Academy who would always tell us to get our mind right. And, you know, I never really understood that until I went out on the street by myself, you know? Um, and when you're, you know, the moment that you strap on your vest and put that badge on, you know, you know, there's, there's a sense of, um, you know, you have to be superhuman to a certain extent. Um, but you're also getting your mind right and, you know, going through your your prayers prior to going out on the street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just kind of reminding yourself daily to not get complacent. Right. Because, you know... a small minority of people who reside in our city really, really do not like the police. And every, you know, and we only come into contact with a very small minority of people. Um, And a lot of those people are the same people every night that we're talking to, you know, whose houses we're going to. who hate us, but call us every, every day. Um, and reminding yourself that, you know, even the simplest of call is that person's worst day. Hmm. When, when you, when you, when you go to some, when someone calls nine one one 
they have a situation that they cannot handle themselves. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really insightful thing you just said. And I, and I don't think that's something that people think about um, when they, when they talk about police, that whenever you come in contact with somebody, when somebody calls you to their place of residence or their place of work or wherever, it's their worst day. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get the phone call that says, Hey, we're having a barbecue. We'd just love for you to come hang out and, and have a, have a cold one with us. Like that's not part of your job. Right. You get called when people are having their worst day. Right. And, and that's, I, I think, I think that's one of those, I think that's one of those things that, um, as we have these conversations about, uh, police policing, all that kind of thing, um, that especially those of us who are lay people who are not police, who, who don't know the ins and outs, we need to keep that reality in mind. Um, I think that, that was, that's a really insightful statement. And yes, this is on video and, and you'll be able to use this against me for the rest of my life that I said, you said something insightful. Uh, you know, <laughs> finds an acorn every once in a while. <laughs> or as my buddy says, they don't, they just die in the winter. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, that just that really struck me. Um, so, you know, and then I always worked midnight shift, and so you know, when you do a car stop, you never know who's in that car or what just happened. You know, they could be, you know, Granny from around the block. Or could be uh, somebody who just shot up a street corner and are, you know, are not going to be going back to jail or going to jail. Yeah. Um, You never know who you're going to encounter. So, you know, there's, there's that. you know, unknown that is dangerous. Okay. Um, and, you know, that, you know, you get complacent to. And, you know, things that become normal that really shouldn't be normal, you know? What do you mean by that? Because that, that's, that's another interesting, that's another interesting statement. Things become normal that shouldn't be normal. You know, my my work for the last five years has been people who have been shot that didn't die. And, you know, when you go, and for the last 10 years, you know, you see it, not just from the investigative side, but as a, as a primary um, officer, the first person on scene, you know, you see people dying, you see people who, and are coming into contact with people who have just been raped and, or robbed or, you know, it's not very often anymore that I am emotionally struck by an incident. And I could, I can tell you the last time that I was, um, 
and it was five years ago, six years ago, that I was emotionally involved in a case. Um, we had, it was, I was still working robberies at the time. Um, so it was probably even long, it was probably 2014. Um, and we had a guy who, uh, this kid, um, a juvenile who was robbing people and at knife point. Um, and he ended up robbing a family. He held a daughter at knife point while he was robbing the dad and the mom and um, the other kids that were with them. I think there was like three kids with them. Mm. Held one of the daughters at knife point. Um, and that one, that one struck me because, and I still get, I still get jitters thinking about it. Um, and it wasn't, you know, nobody was hurt physically, but when you're sitting in an interview room with someone who is supposed to be someone else's superhero because that's what we are as dads mm -hmm. we're superheroes especially to our daughters especially right. to our daughters and as a dad you are expected to keep everybody safe and when this dad couldn't do that and you know, everyone armchairs quarterbacks and says, you know, I, oh, I, that wouldn't happen to me. When someone's got a knife at your daughter, you're doing whatever the hell they want you to do. Mm -hmm. Because you want them to be safe and you don't want anything to happen to your, your little girl. But at the same point, that girl is now looking at her dad in a different way because he didn't keep her safe. that one really really stuck with me and and still does um because you know that kid changed the path of a relationship it wasn't just you know him robbing somebody of a belonging he robbed he robbed that dad of so much more than a few dollars you know he took he took his he took that dad's superhero card oh. and you know there's there's nothing that can there's nothing that can prepare you for something like that for an, you know i wasn't even there but when you're sitting in an interview room with a dad trying to tell him that he did the right thing when you know in the eyes of his daughter you know that it wasn't the right thing oh. so to speak mm -hmm. because he didn't he wasn't able to act that there's there's something there man yeah. you know yeah so you know that was the last time that i was you know very very involved emotionally right. and 
because because of situations like that and seeing that every day i'm gonna bring this back around now yeah um, and seeing you know blood and gore and you know people who are screaming for their life on you know a pretty pretty consistent basis um you become numb to it emotionally and detached from it and that is just i think that's a human response to protect protect us you know to protect me um because you know i have as soon as i get in my truck to come home everything is left in that parking lot and that you know it took me several years to to really be able to do that yeah is to disconnect myself from work um so and i think you know when you become cold to it it emotionally it helps you but you know it also i think i think there's a certain level of care that you lose when that happens and that that was going to be my question because my hunch is some folks listening to this on some level will understand what you're saying as far as needing to you know need to kind of have some of those self-protective emotional layers um built up but i think some folks would would hear that and will hear that and say well, then that's, that's why some of these different things happen is because when police are interacting with, with the public, they're no, they're, they're so disconnected that they, that they lose some of, they lose some of the, the humanity of the people that, that they're inter- interacting with. Um, when you, if someone were to ask you, I guess I am asking that, um, but how do you, how do you, how do you find that balance of being able to leave it at work, but also still maintaining the reality that the people you're interacting with on a nightly basis are, are human beings. They're, they're real life people with moms and daughters and sons and sisters and brothers. And I think that's something that, you know, it's something that is learned you may not be emotionally involved in something, but you can have empathy towards it. Um, and you might not quote unquote care, but you know, when, when you go to a call, you know, that, you know, it is your job, you know, it's our job to go and handle those those issues and you know i i think that you know really you know probably the strong majority of police that i know 
you know, have that disconnect, are able to leave it, leave it all at work. But that's the thing is you, you're not going to be your best self if you're thinking about it all the time. You're not going to be the best police officer you can be if you can't, you know, shut it down and get good sleep. Cause that's, that was half my issue was I wasn't sleeping very good when I didn't leave it at work. And so you're coming in tired and emotionally exhausted. Um, so you're not, you're not putting your best self out there either. If you're not kind of disconnecting yourself, but at the same time, when you do get to work, you put that shirt on, you know, and it's time to, it's time to turn it back on. Yeah. Because you're in a, you're in a profession where in a very real sense, you're not allowed to have bad days because when you have bad days, people get hurt and Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like, um, uh, it's kind of like, you know, you, you would not feel real comfortable walking into the airport and up to your check-in for your flight. And they say, just so you know, 90% of our pilots never crash. Right. 10% (laughs) have bad days a lot. You're not going to fly on that airline and you, you know, you're just, you're in one of those, you know, those, it, that's, that's a lot of pressure. So how do you, how do you, how do you handle the, the pressure of, of being a police officer um, in the kind of place that you are? Um, like at work or in general? Just, just in general. So you know, you have to find your outlets. You know, I, um, I like to work out. Um, and that's something that I've really dove into the last year or so. Okay. Um, I mean, I've always dabbled here and there, you know, gone stretches where I worked out, but I've really like that, that hour to a day, really helps me mentally because you can get out some of that, you know, aggression. Yeah. Some of the frustration. Frustrations. Um, you know, and then, you know, there's, you know, alcohol helps. <laughs> I mean, you know, as, as much as you hate to say that, you know, having a drink here, you know, having a drink, helps squash some of the emotion that you feel. Um, And I, you know, I'm in no way an alcoholic, but. Right. Jenny, Jenny would end you if you were. Right. Uh, So, so, you know, there's, you just got to find your outlets. Yeah. Um, And, and hope and hope for them to be a healthy outlet. Healthy outlet. Yeah. (laughs) I'd say, just from at least just from the outside looking in, I'd say uh, home renovation is one of your outlets. Uh, oh yeah, because good lord, um, y'all might as well have just built your own dang house at this point. I know, <laughs> and you know I like, and you know I'm I really like you know the landscaping. Yeah, the physical stuff. Um, anything that really takes your mind off of work. 
Yeah. Um, so, so one of the, one of the things that's kind of hot in the news and in the world right now is, um, are all the protests going on kind of all over the place. Um, I will, I'll never forget. Are you talking um, protests or the riots? Um, well, let's, let's start with protests. Um, um, well, and, and well, and the riots, I mean, the, I won't forget the riots. I guess I am talking more about the riots. Um, but I, I mean, I won't forget the Baltimore ones, uh, after Freddie Gray, the Freddie Gray stuff went down. Um, I remember sitting, uh, my desk was oriented differently, but I remember sitting, sitting in my, uh, little den area, uh, having downloaded a police scanner for Baltimore, uh, just trying to see if I could hear your voice, um, that those nights that you were, you were out there. Um, so when, what, what's, what goes through, what's kind of going through the mind of a, of police officers in the midst of, let, let's start with the protests. When you're, when you're, when guys are men and women are on, on that line as a police officer during, during a protest, uh, just a norm, not, not a riot, but just, just a protest. What's, what's kind of the mindset, um, that, that, that folks have that, you know, you're, that you guys have as you're, as you're kind of standing there, um, for those, for those protests. Um, well, as long as as long as they're peaceful, you know it. It's more of like a. To me, I'm not gonna speak for other people, but for me, you know, we're there to ensure that everyone is safe. Okay. And we're you know whether it's a protest or you're at somebody's house, a lot of times people just need someone to yell at. Right. And I, you know, sometimes feel like police officers are put in that position. You know, we are there to kind of protect or centralize where that protest is happening. Okay. You know, because we don't, you know, it's all fine and dandy to be out in the street protesting, but we don't want that protest to move indoors somewhere. Right. Um, where, you know, it's much easier to, you know, there's because, because of the safe, there's, there's a lot more room outside. Yeah. And if, if people start moving indoors, there's going to be, it's a lot closer and there's a lot more, um possibility for someone to get hurt sure so, so then so then is that we're there to be though for as a safety precaution for everybody mm -hmm. but i think we're also there as the face of whatever people are protesting at the time mm. whether it's police brutality whether it's you know a president who is you know taking flight somewhere mm -hmm. 
we are the face of whatever issue people are protesting at the mm-hmm. time. We're giving some, we're giving them someone to yell at. Okay. Because protest isn't a protest unless you're, you know, yeah, directing your anger or your protest at something. Sure. And I think, you know, people, you know, do picket lines and stuff like that. But that's, I think, picket lines and stuff like that. I think is small scale compared to, like a, like a genuine protest. protest. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so as it in those in those and, times. So when you're when you were, you were in the midst of the Baltimore riots, what was, what was going through your mind during those, during those, those times? Um, at that point for me, it was, um, just safety out, you know, keep me safe. Keep the guy next to me safe. Yeah. You know, keep the person behind me safe get home yep um i mean because that's at that point it's you know when it becomes like a full-fledged riot it's us versus them and you hate i you know i hate to say that but at a certain point you just you know you have to that you know you almost have to think that way just to be safe because sure. you don't want to get complacent with anything. You know, when you have bottles being thrown at you and rocks being thrown at you and, you know, it's probably one of the scariest things that I've ever gone through in my entire life. Um, and that's saying something. I mean, you were in war, right? But, you know, Navy wasn't, to me, it wasn't really war, how you would think of war. Because I was, you know, I was on a boat. Fighting against the, yeah, fighting against the nation. Fighting against someone that I don't know. Yeah. And indirectly, indirectly, we may have been killing, you know, definitely were killing people. And I was, you know, indirectly, because I was loading the ordinance that they would drop on places. Um, but it wasn't as personal as, you know, the riots were, or as, you know, the Marines or army who were boots on ground in those, in those zones. Yeah. Um, do you, do you feel like you still have trauma from, from kind of walking through that? Um, to tell you the truth, I don't know. Yeah, I really don't. Um, I know as far as I can't watch any of that stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. I used to be able to watch all the videos and, (laughs) and, you know, but I, I can't, you know, I just, I cannot watch it. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. Um, 
I think almost almost every one of my black friends who have interviewed said the same have said a lot of the same thing similarly I just can't watch it I can't watch it anymore um and, and so it like, is I I feel like because of the media and because of cell phones and you know there's not one inch of this world anymore that's not captured right one way or another and it's just shoved down our throats you know like in one instance i think it's good because it has started a conversation yeah but likewise that conversation is one-sided or the other sided you know there's no there's no truth in anything anymore um because you know there's no such thing as an investigative reporter anymore right yeah it certainly doesn't seem that way that's for sure um you know the days of walter cronkite just telling us exactly what what is going on opposed to what he feels is you know what needs to be shared yeah um yeah everything's editorialized these days you know it's all it's all op-eds it's not you know there's no newspaper that is neutral there's no media outlet that's neutral and i mean the difference between Fox News and CNN, I mean, that's like one wing nut or the other wing nut. (laughs) And the only true wing nuts reside in Detroit, and they go down to, I guess, this LCA now. So, right. (laughs) I mean, it is. I mean, like, and you can't, and, you know, I, for a long time, I watched both channels. Yeah. Just to help me decide, you know, where that truth lied. Yeah. And you, you can't. It's just, it's I brutal. Mean, it, is like, it is like so far left or so far right. Yeah. You know, there is no common ground at all in the media anymore. Nope. And, nope. And I think that, um, you know, the problem with that is depending on what channel you watch is kind of how you see the world. Yep. You know, you get in that echo chamber that you align yourself with this or you align yourself with that, but it's taking out the, you know, you're, you're displacing the uncomfortable parts of life. Yep. You know, it's a good word. And, you know, as, as much as, as much as, you know, the conversation is uncomfortable. I know since, since Freddie Gray, our department has gone through a lot of changes. Um, And you see that mostly in our training every year. Um, And, you know, it's almost, it's almost annoying now, but necessary. Yeah. 
that makes any sense. It, oh, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, it's it's the it's like oh, we're going over this again. You know, yeah. well, you know, we consistently we consistently talk about biases and um, you know implicit biases and. And, and you have to because those things are so. I could tell you the other the other bias. <laughs> yeah, they're just they're so deeply embedded in us, right? And, um, you know, it's 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 like anything else. It's you know we're we're we all have to keep doing the work, right? And um, so that's so uh, Jay. I want to I want to be um, sensitive to your time. Um, we've been going, man. I can't believe we've been going for over an hour now. Um, it doesn't feel like it's been that long. Um, but, uh, I, if anybody's watching want, and if there are any questions, um, for Jay, uh, drop them here in the Facebook feed. Uh, one of my friends, uh, well, let, let's kind of look through here. Um, I want to know what Will thinks of me. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Will, Will will like you. Um, but, uh, I haven't got any texts from Will. So I haven't got any texts from Will yet, which means, uh, either he's not paying attention yet or. He's digging what you're saying. Um, Aunt Cheryl says, thank you for your service and praying for your safety. Thank um, you. My buddy, uh, my buddy, Ted, uh, he asked if you've had any successes with N-I-B-I-N in your casework. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I <I've... laughs> I'm a terrible, terrible detective. No. <laughs> um, I, to tell you the truth, there's, there's certain databases that I use. And so I don't even know if that's part of one of the databases that I use. Okay. Um, there's certain ones that I use that I, and what I do use is, you know, I have a lot of success with, um, but I'm not, I'm not a detective that, really relies on any particular database. Um, okay. I'm more of a, you know, detective that goes out and, you know, tries to develop people. And, yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of my job, I have found um, I'm better at because of growing up in a car dealership watching our dad sell people yeah you know on any particular day our dad could you know have played football (laughs) tennis you know (laughs) yeah uh, yeah church going man you know, I mean, it didn't really matter what <laughs> he, he he was able to relate to people on, on a level that whether whether he did it or not, he was learned it enough to know yep. the ins and outs of of almost everything. It seemed like. Yeah, I, I think I think that's one of the greatest. That's it's one of the greatest gifts that that dad passed on. I think to all three of us boys is the ability to connect with, um, with people from any, any walk of life. Um, whether that's, you know, talking to people in the city, people in the, 
in the rural areas, wherever it might be. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely a gift. Um, well, I don't, I don't see any other questions. Um, but, uh, if, if anybody wants to post more questions, I'm sure Jay will stalk my Facebook and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see them. Um, we'll not so, argue about anything though. No, so know. yeah, no arguing. Um, so, uh, Jay, man, thank you so much for being on with me this week. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, guys, if you want to continue the conversation with me, you can do so on Twitter at Daniel M Rose. Uh, you can find the archive of this video at youtube.com slash Daniel Rose. The audio only version, uh, will go, uh, will be made public on Friday. And the easiest way for you to hold of that is if you subscribe, uh, to love well at danielmrose.com. And then everything I write and record goes right into your inbox. Um, so until next week. Whoa, 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 whoa. You didn't, I've watched, I did my research on your oh. podcast. Yeah. And you didn't let me do my one takeaway. Oh, you're right. I did it. Jay, what's your one takeaway? <laughs> Jerk. I am. I am. I failed, man. I think, everybody I the takeaway. Everyone got to do take. All right, Jay, what's your, what's your takeaway? So my takeaway is, um, I actually have two. I actually thought about oh, this. Oh, so wait. Not only are you going to bust my chops, but you're going to double up? I am. Fair enough. So there's two. All right. Um, number one, remember that police are humans. Police do make mistakes. And nothing in policing is pretty. Even the most compliant arrest isn't pretty when you're looking at it from the outside in. Um, and number two, um, well, crap. Now I lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> you didn't swear though. So that's, that's a win. But main, you know, mainly just, you know, police are human. And oh, my second thing is is to before you make a determination on it incident that you see plastered all over, you know, social media, the media, remember that not everything is shown. Like, for instance, um, in Minnesota. Um, a lot of people that I have talked to have related the Minnesota incident to Eric Garner. And I've actually, you know, I live in a community much like Ypsilanti. Um, and I believe that this community, communities like where we live, me and you, are the communities that will change the world. Ooh. Because we can... It's very easy for us to have these hard conversations right. in the communities that we live in because they're diverse. I've sat in my neighbor's garage across the street and, you know, 
we've had the conversations. And I don't know if anything I say, you know, changes their mind. I know a lot of what they say has changed my mind. Um, however, there, you know, there's a big, there's a big difference. And I, you know, I told this to, to them, um, there, you know, there's a big difference between what happened in Minnesota and what happened in New York with Eric Garner in Minnesota, that man was handcuffed almost immediately and was on the ground handcuffed. He, he may have been passive and, you know, not being completely compliant. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I've watched bits and pieces of that video um, just because it made me sick to see, you know, these, you know, people treating other people unhuman. Um but Eric Garner was being, no matter what he did, and I'm not going to say that, you know, everything is, um, was done correctly. However, the circles back to one of my takeaways is policing isn't always pretty. Um, when someone doesn't want to be arrested, no matter what it's for, it could be something as simple as selling a cigarette. Um, if they don't want to be arrested, it is not easy to arrest somebody. Cool. It's not easy to get somebody in handcuffs. Minnesota, he was in handcuffs right away. It's almost like from what I saw, they took him out of the car and had him in handcuffs. They had him walking around in handcuffs. From video that I saw that is somebody who there was no need for what happened in Minnesota at all and that completely ruins my profession no matter where you're at in the world we have to rebuild again um, Eric Garner was aggressively uncompliant you know he would not let them handcuff him and people you know and with a man as big as eric garner was it takes two you know two or three sets of handcuffs to handcuff someone that that big and you know getting one set of handcuffs on somebody is a pain let alone trying to navigate with other people and their handcuffs trying to handcuff somebody and you know for a long time the holds that were used with eric garner whether it be the chokehold or you know those holds were compliant you know they they were not compliant they were you know under policy things that police could use and you know it's unfortunate that what happened happened but compliance black white or indifferent compliance is something that will keep people safe whether it's the police or you you know if you're being arrested you know 
and I, I know this is probably going to get a lot of backlash, but, um, you know, there, I think there's a huge difference between, you know, what happened in Minnesota and what happened with Eric Garner. And that's, that's why, you know, that's something that I had talked about with my neighbors and, you know, it's just something, you know, there, there's a big difference between, between those two incidences. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna, I wouldn't even talk about Freddie Gray just because yeah. he posted. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but there, you know, there's a lot going on. I, you know, just, I guess my takeaway is to remember that there's always eight sides to every story mm. and somewhere in the middle of those, and as an investigator, as a detective, that's what we always have to find because every shooting there, you know, you can talk to 19 different people and have 19 different stories. Yeah. And so our, you know, as, as an investigator, our job is to find the truth within all of those different stories. Um, And, you know, I employ, I employ everybody to do that, to take on that role instead of, you know, having knee jerk reactions to everything. Right. You know, take, take a few days, let, let, you know, let all the information come in, whether it be, you know, you know, and, you know, Michael Brown was a a good example of that, you know, when, you know, scientific evidence started coming in, it disproved a lot of what witnesses said happened. Um, so I just, you know, I, I employ everybody to really take a step back before you have a, you know, you can have your opinion, obviously, but, you know, have an educated opinion, you know, I think, think, you know, and I think that extrapolates to a lot of things like more than just more than just these, these, these moments. Right. Um, because we live in this culture where like everybody seems to be racing to be first on their social media to be, to, to talk about this X, Y, Z thing, whatever it might be. Um, and you know, I see it, I see it in my profession, (laughs) um, with, with stuff that goes on, uh, with clergy and it seems like people want to be the first to, to rush to judgment on a lot of those things. And then you find out later that there's more to the story. And, and so there's just, there is, there's something good about taking a breath and, you know, just let's just see, see what happens. So that's, that's good. It's good insight. We don't, we don't have to, we don't have to be the first one to post. And, uh, you know, oftentimes, Oftentimes, truth uh, looks a lot differently um, a couple of days later. Yep, and you know, I I actually learned that lesson um, through uh, my son playing sports. Mm. <laughs> um, we had a bad, a very bad coach, mm. uh, and you know, I. You know, I, I had, 
you know, I, I get very, very angry. What? And I sent an email um, to the commissioner of the sport that he was playing at the time. Um, and, you know, after I sent it, you know, a couple of days later, I'm like, man, was I that whiny parent? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that I that I literally make fun of. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Am I that guy? <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, I don't want to be, you know, the Karen in the group. Right. Um, I was like, man, I'm going to have to go get a Bob haircut and, you know, <laughs> start asking for the manager all the time. Um, but anyway, so the commissioner finally called me back and he had, he has a, you know, a 72 hour wait before he'll talk to any parent, mm-hmm. you know? And so when he called me, he's like, you know, I, I'm sorry, he, you know, he apologized for the wait, but he explained why he waits because he doesn't want to have a knee jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, in that 72 hours, he received, you know, like five or six other emails about the same coach. Hmm. He was like, you know, I'm glad that I do wait because, you know, I got, I got emails from other coaches. I got, you know, you know, all of this other evidence that this guy really needed to be removed from, you know, right. Or at least coaching this age group. Right. He would have been probably a fantastic high school coach. Sure, sure. But you know, not a not a great coach for a five year old. Right. You know, just I I employ everybody to uh, to take a step back Hmm. prior to deciding on something, prior to posting something. Hmm. Um, Really know what your position is, um, and try and find the truth in, in each situation. Um, because, you know, there's, you know, there's things that happen. Like, you know, I, there, the Brianna Taylor situation, um, you know, you, you read about it and, you know, you're like, man, a lot of things had to go wrong for that to happen. Yep. And, you know, there's, I, I can't tell you, I've, I've been on hundreds of search warrants and, you know, there's, there's never been a discharging of a firearm on any of the warrants that I've ever been on. Right. Um, now when you say search warrant and no knocks, Yes. Okay. And in our city, in, in our city, SWAT handles no knocks. Gotcha. Um, just because, you know, we have a threat level thing that we have to fill out and the no knock immediately takes it to SWAT. Gotcha. Which is not social workers and therapists. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, uh. So, you know, and search warrants are never pretty either. However, I don't think there, there, something, something had to have gone on in that house for 
the police to start discharging their firearms. And I, to tell you the truth, I I don't really know much about it, and I'm just using it as example. Yeah. So at, le- at least at least from from my reading of it, Jay, um, it's uh, the being being no knock the uh, her boyfriend thought they were being robbed and he opened fired he he opened fire first and then the police responded um but they didn't need they didn't at least what i've they didn't go in in a hail of gunfire right they they didn't know that brianna taylor and her boyfriend did not know that they were the police um when the shooting started at least that's the i know you're kind of rolling your eyes a little bit but but that's that's the that, that's that seems to be so far um we're however many weeks out now that seems to be the consistent story that's that's been told um so it sounds but it also sounds like there's a lot of mistakes made on you know the the person they were looking to arrest was already in custody right before they served that warrant and so that that seems to be problematic in and of oh, itself very so they, should never, they should never have entered the house to begin with since the person they were looking to get was already in custody so you can like once again i don't really know all about it yeah, yeah but yeah. um you know i did read a an article out of a liberal source that you know refer to it as the police going in in a hail of gunfire you know and shot up the residents when 20 20 rounds is not a lot sure i mean i don't like my duty weapon holds 14 rounds so unless somebody one person i mean one person didn't even you know if if all the officers fired none of them went all the way through an entire magazine sure and and yet it's it's one of those things where it's it's a person who really shouldn't be who shouldn't be dead today. Right. And, however, and that's, and however, that's the, there's, a, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot that there's a lot that goes on for sure. And, and, you know, I was talking to another neighbor who's also in law enforcement. Um, and, you know, we were both under the same, you know, when this first came out, uh, we were both under the same consensus, you know, on a no-knock warrant, I would not have time to grab my gun. Ooh. If if that warrant is done correctly, Ooh. I wouldn't have time. Interesting. And just as, as the as the person who's being served. Right. Right. If I was asleep in my bed. I wouldn't have had time to, you know, even, you know, you hear the bang. And if 
if you're in a if you're asleep, you're waking up. What is that? Garner your thoughts and then you know go for a gun. Hmm. By that time, you're you're already in handcuffs. Sure. So, there, so there's a there's a lot there's, there's a lot, lot that went on in that house that nobody knows about. Gotcha. Makes sense. Well, Jay, dude, I've kept you very long. This will probably be the long. This will go down as the longest podcast episode uh, ever on my well, podcast. Just explain that you know. Explain that this is this is how life is in the Rose House. <laughs> we use a lot of words. My mom did not have uh, silent males. That's for sure. Uh, so so we are we are wordy, aren't we? We are. <laughs> and we get probably- on. And we, and we go off on uh, on tangents all the time. Meanders. That's right. It's probably it's probably why I ended up being a preacher, and you and Dave both wanted to be teachers, pro- just because we like hearing ourselves talk. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it all takes right. us forty five minutes to tell a good joke. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's hey. Irish on us. It's, it is. It is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, all right, my friends. Uh, I've already done all the other spiels. Jay got double whammy on uh, thoughts to take away. And uh, so until next time, love.